The Nevers Podcast presents In Conversation With. Hello and welcome back to The Nevers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of upcoming HBO series, The Nevers, an original sci-fi drama epic from writer, producer, and nerd god, Joss Whedon. If you'd like to follow us online, you can visit at hbothenevers.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, simply at hbothenevers. You can also stream our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. I'm Tyke, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gina. Hello. And today we have a very, very special guest. He's a Tony Award-winning actor who's been in such productions as Take Me Out, Sweet Charity, Inherit the Wind, and Elling. He's also appeared in films such as Milk, The Dallas Buyers Club, Garden State, and The Proposal, as well as TV series Brothers and Sisters, True Blood, American Horror Story, Big Little Lies, and a small production coming up soon. You you might have heard of it. The Nevers. And ladies and gentlemen, give a huge Neverite welcome to Dennis O'Hare. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi from Paris. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from uh, a late night in Paris where it's actually chilly tonight. It's about nine. And uh, I got the windows closed, but I'm looking out at a beautiful Ausmanian uh, balcony outside my my window. Nice. How is everything in Paris these days? You know, there's a little thing called the lockdown confinement on the on, on the confinement ici à Paris. And um, <laughs> but we we just started our our deconfinement, the deconfinement that just started today. So for today, for the first time, we could go out and go to real stores, and things were open. And it was a kind of a madhouse and <laughs> some people weren't wearing masks. And I'm like, where's your mask? Put your mask on. Don't get near me. <laughs> um, you know, cause I'm just like, I'm not getting this thing. Uh, but it was kind of, it was kind of cool. And I went out and for a two and a half hour bike ride to celebrate because we've been locked down for, uh, you can't go a kilometer away from your house and you can't be out more than a half hour. So we've been locked, we've been locked down in Paris. Yeah. I want to say I have family in France, and I know they they can't survive without their morning bread from the fresh from the bakers. Oh no no, no. the boulangerie <laughs> were always open. They were never <sighs> closed. Oh. Mais non, of course. No, no, mais non, mais non, le pas. <laughs> okay, phew. I was going to say I was, I was worried about the the whole country there, but yeah, if they've got their bread, oh. they'll soldier on. First things first, we have to do a little housekeeping. I heard through the grapevine that you'd lost your Tony. Did you manage to track it down? Is that safe and sound on the <laughs> shelf again? It is definitely not lost. It, it is somewhere. Um, it is, you know, I lived for 19 years in the same apartment in Brooklyn. And then we had to move and sell when Trump got elected. We had to get out of the country, um, which is true. Smart. So we, we, you know, how are things going there? Um, uh, we had to move and sell. And we packed all the boxes up. And we moved to another place for about a year. And then we packed all those boxes up. And then we moved to Paris. And we put some of our stuff in storage, so I have total confidence that it is somewhere. Lost is when you <laughs> you just drop it down a sewer, or you leave it in a taxi cab, or you know. <laughs> but, but that didn't happen to me. Indeed, I'm sure it'll return when it feels it's most necessary. It is. It is, it is hibernating. It is resting. It is. It is taking its you know its moment. Indeed, and that was the Tony you won for your performance in Joe Mantello's Take Me Out. Yes. Yeah, in 2003, yeah. Great performance. Everyone was so sure that you were going to win that one. It must have been quite a relief when they did call you. I'm like, yes, I did it. I haven't sort of, I haven't let anyone down. It was, it was totally terrifying because all you can do at that point is lose because you've already supposedly won in everyone's mind. And, uh, you know, my parents decided to come for that weekend, also their 50th anniversary. So no pressure. My entire family showed up. Everybody showed up. They're all there. They're all waiting. I, it was it was sort of a nightmare in that I, I I wasn't happy until after the announcement came, just because I, I I was so terrified to disappoint so many people. Um, and of course, my favorite sort of reaction was 
from New Yorkers. I think I saw it about a week later. I was doing a show. I came out and some lady was waiting for me. She was like, I told you we were going to win. I knew you'd <laughs> win. I told you and you won. I'm like, so what? It's your Tony? Wait, I didn't know you You're fabulous. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Um, I was a theater major, so I'm kind of geeking out a little bit. And that's an interesting take on the whole Tony thing. You would think that you would just be excited, but that's fascinating that you're <laughs> nervous and scared about it. Um, but also, I'm up against Daniel Sanjati, who's my co-star. I'm up against Robert Sean Leonard, Phil Hoffman, you know, amazing people. And, you know, it's also, I wanted it, but I also didn't want to kill somebody else's dream you know um i have to say at that point in my life i was i was i was about 40 and i was kind of thinking you know what if it doesn't happen now it's not gonna happen so there's also that sort of pressure about watching your life and your career sort of go oh almost oh well okay <laughs> and so it was a great relief to sort of get that to have happen you know the thing that doesn't happen when you win a tony is that your life doesn't change you don't get any money. You don't get a job. You don't, there's, there's no sort of like amazing, you know, you don't step through this, this, this door and you're in Tony land suddenly. Um, <laughs> but it does give you a little trademark next to your name. You get that little, you know, Venezuela hair trademark Tony winner. And that helps. That's great. See, that's, that's pretty cool. Not too bad, you know? Um, <laughs> so that was a little more recent. Now let's go back a little bit more in time. Where did you grow up? And do you have any fond memories of growing up there? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> uh, I grew up in Michigan. I was very fond of Michigan. I grew up in a suburb of Detroit called Southfield. If you remember the movie Eight Mile, which was the Eminem sort of big breakout thing, I was raised on 11 and a half mile because there's no imagination in Detroit. It's eight mile, nine mile, 10 mile, 11 mile, 12 mile, 13 mile. Um, and uh, I went to school on 15 mile, which is known as Maple. They do change the names a little bit. And I went to high school, a place called Brother Rice High School, which is a Christian Brothers of Ireland high school. I was basically a good Catholic boy. So I went to grade school for eight years with Franciscans and then high school four years with um, Christian Brothers of Ireland. But, um, you know, Michigan was a cool place. I really liked it. It was... Um, the weather was not great. We got a lot of snow, a lot of ice. The summers were nice. Um, it's it's what I knew. They have a terrible accent. I got rid of it as soon as I possibly could. It's one of the worst accents in the world. Um, Ohio's a terrible accent. Michigan's a terrible accent. And Buffalo, New York is a terrible accent. Um, let's see if I can channel. I'll channel some of it. So all the Michiganders, you know what I'm saying. Don't get mad at me. You understand. You know. Come on. Cop to it. It's like my mom and my dad went outside and I like, uh, <laughs> I had a glass of milk and then at night I laid down on my pillow because it was like hot and you know, like that. <laughs> not as charming as Wisconsin and it's not as fun as Chicago. It's just ugly. Sorry. <laughs> now I hope you play roles that you have to do those accents. I, and my favorite accent, of course, is Baltimore, which I can't do. It's very, very difficult to do. Um, it's sort of like Philly a little bit, so Philadelphia, um, a hagee and a cake. But, you know, Baltimore is like, um, hey, Horn, how are you doing? Y'all get your cake? Let's go downtown and get a hagee and a cake. Anyway, that's, that's, my, <laughs> that's my bad version of a Baltimore accent. I love Baltimore accents. <laughs> but um, what was it? Was there a specific film or performance that first was that you're like, that's what I want to do. I, I want to be that person. Huh, that's interesting. I, you know, uh, unfortunately, when I was young, I didn't make a distinction between movies and real life. And so I didn't ever think about, oh, I want to be that person. I was just like, oh, I, I want to, that's my, I want to be in that world. So when I was little, I used to tape movies with a cassette tape recorder from the television. And I'd have all the tapes lined up and I'd try to time it for the commercials. And I remember taping Fiddler on the Roof and I taped Funny Girl. And I taped on a clear day, you can see forever. And I taped um, Sound of Music. And I would listen to them at night, the whole movie, not just the music, the whole movie, dialogue and everything. And I was so into those worlds. I just, I, I couldn't identify with those worlds so completely. I also felt responsible for all the bad things that happened in those worlds. So when, when the Nazis like uh, threatened the Von Trapp family, I was like, oh no, if only I hadn't 
been here, it wouldn't have happened. But because <laughs> I'm listening, the Nazis came to power. Oh, I'm so sorry, Maria. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Captain Von Trapp. Um, so, you know, I wasn't so much inspired as I was, I don't know, I, I, I sort of morphed into those worlds so completely. And I guess that's a form of inspiration. But if I, if I had anybody I was inspired by, this sounds really bizarre, and nobody will know what I'm talking about. It was Jack Benny, which nobody knows anymore. Jack Benny was a comedian from the 40s and the 50s, and he died when I was about maybe nine or 10. And I found his death remarkably moving and earth-shaking. And I didn't understand why everybody else was just going on about their daily lives. I was like, but Jack Benny died. Jack <laughs> Benny died. He's, he's Jack Benny. And I, I love his comedy, and I love the way he, he performed. You know, I, I, I was raised on great films like Lawrence of Arabia and watching that, and that kind of affected my brain. Um, watching great movies like, I don't know, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, just so many great, great films in the 70s and the 80s I was raised on. Poseidon Adventure not being one of them. Towering Inferno not being one of them. But, you know, so many <laughs> movies that I... As also a Vincent Price freak. I adored Vincent Price. I adored Peter Lorre. I adored um, um, uh, Cushing, Peter Cushing. And I wanted to be these guys. So if anybody inspired me, it was all of the villains, the monsters, Sidney Greenstreet, you know, all yes. these people I loved. Um, you know, uh, just because, I don't know, I, I, I really related to the power that monsters had. That's a beautiful answer. Yeah, villains are always my favorite and everything. Um, our next question is a question submitted by Emily McDermott. And this kind of goes with what we're talking about. Her question is, what do you love most about storytelling? Ah, Emily, I like surprises. I like memorable turns of phrase and memorable pictures. I like to be moved. I like to be scared. I like to be uh, awestruck. So I tend to like sci-fi. I tend to like fantasy because I want to live in a world that has marshmallow flowers and bees that talk and skies that open up and swallow you and take you to other universes. I want to be in those worlds. And I, I love the expansive imagination of writers who, who traffic in those worlds. So whether it's Neil Gaiman, who I adore, oh. or, you know, Isaac Asimov or Heinlein or Ray Bradbury or, you know, any of the more recent writers. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've ever read Doris Lessing, Doris Lessing sci-fi, but Doris Lessing, you know, was a famous British author who wrote some pretty heavy duty stuff like the golden uh, notebook. And, um, Oh God, I can't think of it right now, but anyway, big, big, heavy duty uh, writer. She also wrote a sci-fi series called Shikasta, um, Canopus and Argus, which was a huge failure for her, but a great boon for us because they're amazing books. Not all of them. One is terrible, but <laughs> four, out, of, out of the five, three are amazing and the other two are like, eh. But I just love her version of alternate universes. And so when I'm in a storytelling setting, I want to be, I want to be transported. I want to be taken away. Your mother was a musician. Do you feel that influenced you in any way? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a musician. I consider myself a hack musician. Um, I was born with musical talent. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I started playing when I was five. I just sat down and started playing. I learned to read music at about five or six. I was playing church organ uh, when I was eight at, at um, school. I played for the church masses. Um, um, I just kind of had it. I never honed it. I never practiced. I didn't get remarkably good, which is my fault. I still play to this day. I play for myself. Um, I was the kind of nerd who sat around playing recorder duets with my best friend in the parking lot, breaking out some Telemann, you know, the cannons. Um, when I was 12, <laughs> I just the local Bach choir and got in and sang the, the Bach mass in B minor when I was 12. And um, I just, I just adore music. I, you know, to tell you what kind of parent I am, um, at night, my son, when I put him to bed, I usually tell him uh, the plots of operas, and then I play him <laughs> that opera. And so I tell him about Turandot, you know, Turando, Virginia Opera, where, um, you know, she beheads all the people who come to be her suitor because she is embodied by the spirit of a princess who was raped a thousand years ago. 
it's hard to edit that for a kid, but I figure <laughs> out how to, how to put these things. You know, well, they were dating and the date didn't go well. <laughs> and the princess got mad. Um, but he adores it. And then, you know, from there we go on to Salome. That's another wholesome story. And then Rigoletto about a, court, a hunchback court jester who has revenge on the philandering Duke of Mantua. And then we did Traviata, the woman dying of consumption, which is weird in the COVID age. But um, so I, 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 I'm steeping my son in, in music, I hope. But I, you know, I think musically, I, 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 I act musically, I dream musically. Kind of everything I do is infused with music. I can't not feel the beat. I hear language in terms of music. I hear, I hear lines in terms of how they feel musically. I memorize lines musically. So it, it, I, I'm sort of imbued with it. Do you ever remember a time where like you couldn't sing well or could you just always carry a tune? You know, I, I again, I think that music is an inborn talent, but it needs to be trained. And I think that doesn't mean that people who don't have it can't develop it. I think, I think, you know, with the proper teaching, I, I think I could always sing. I remember in high school, someone accusing me of singing flat and I was outraged. <laughs> like, how dare you accuse me of singing flat? You know, what I've, what I've since come to understand is that everybody sings flat, you know, because singing flat means that you don't, you're not usually putting the energy into it. Singing sharp, that's a problem. That means you can't hear, usually. Um, singing sharp can also be, you know, over, overreaching for a note, but, um, I love singing. I'm not as I'm not good enough to please myself, so I don't love hearing myself sing. Uh, I think to be a really great singer, you have to fall in love with your own voice, and I don't love my voice. Um, I think it's fine. Um, I, I I get a great joy out of certain kind of singing and certain things. I've trained to be an opera singer for a little bit. Uh, I was accepted into the University of Michigan opera department, and I didn't go. But um, that was one kind of career path I didn't follow. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't because I don't think I have the equipment. I just, you know, in, in opera, man, it's, it's a rare, it's a rarefied world. And the people who are good are, are, are great. And I, I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have competed. <laughs> so you attended Northwestern University for acting. Um, how did you enjoy your studies there? You know, I, I had a great education. I had incredible teachers. And um, I was at that point in life where I don't think I would have been happy anywhere. I was just unhappy. I was, you know, I was drinking too much. I was partying too much. I was tortured. I was twisted. I was conflicted about my sexuality. I was, I, I was, I was determined to be unhappy. I was just destined. I wanted to be unhappy. I wore black coats. I, I, I lost as much weight as I possibly could. I drank bourbon constantly. I smoked cigarettes. I had a big beard. I hung out and talked about the existential writers. I was a poetry major for two years. I hung out with other poets. Um, I was just tortured, just tortured. If I had had me as a student, I would have been like, oh, God, just <laughs> go away and get over this stuff and come back, you know, when you're ready. My God. But what do you do with 18 and 19 year olds? You, you know, they have to go through it. I had to go through it. I had to. I had to find out who I was. I had to explore every avenue of unhappiness in order to arrive somewhere, I guess. And um, I do feel like at the time I was 20 or 21, right when I was graduating, I figured out how to learn. And I was lucky enough to take a lot of courses in history at Northwestern. And they have a great history department. And I, I, I took also some incredible literature courses uh, in German literature, in Russian literature, and in English literature. And I'm so grateful for that. And then I had a great acting teacher. David Downs is a great, great, great acting teacher. And um, I was surrounded by some wonderful fellow students who were incredibly talented. John Logan being one who comes to mind, who is a, a really gifted screenwriter and also a gifted playwright. And I did yeah. three or four of his plays. Um, so, you know, all in all, it was an incredibly um, lucky place for me to land. And I, while I didn't sort of, embrace it socially and I was a bit of an outcast and lived off campus and waited tables and things like that I got an incredible um, education and I learned how to act there and I learned how to think about art there and I learned about poetry um, I, it's in, in invaluable really sounds like you really made the most of your time there you kind of 
sampled the gamut of human emotion. Yeah. When you, when you first decided to really embrace acting, did you sort of tread the boards first and go to the stage, or did you go straight to sort of on screen to TV and acting and movies? No, I was, I'm a theater baby. I'm theater born and bred. I mean, I let's see, I oh gosh, I don't know how many plays I've done. I've done so many plays, um, and it wasn't until I guess 19, I don't even know. 94, five, I did my first TV thing. And that was not followed by a lot of TV things. I did Law and Order in New York. My first real film of any note uh, was um, uh, uh, The Anniversary Party with Jennifer Jason Lee and Alan Cumming. They wrote a, they gave a part, they wrote a part for me. And then um, Zach Braff gave me a beautiful part in uh, Garden State. Um, but, you know, my, 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 my TV and film career didn't really take off until 2003. When I was already 40, I didn't really do that that much in, in those realms. And then I felt like I really started uh, getting a lot of it. And then about, you know, it wasn't even until Brothers and Sisters and True Blood that I really started hitting it big in TV and, and spending a lot of my time in TV. And, you know, I, I think like any actor would tell you, all these are different media mediums. Theater is very different than film, very different than TV. They all have different requirements. And it's great to go back and forth between them all because you get to play with all of that. You get to play with those different skill levels. And the, the one that I want to, the, the arena I want to play in more is film just because I haven't had the opportunity to have the sort of larger roles I would like in film to really spend the time developing a character. I love the fact that we get to develop characters in TV. I love that nine episode arc or more. What an incredible luxury to to build characters like this. I love that. All right. Here's my geeky question. So I'm a screenwriter. Um, what, what would be like a dream role for you in a film? You know, I have to say, I, I don't, I, I do have one by the way, but the honest answer is I don't have in mind the thing I want to do. I go to the script and if I read a script and I read a part, I go, Ooh, Ooh, I know that guy. Ooh, I like that guy. That's my guy. So I, I go to what's already existing and fit myself into it. You know, there are parts that I've done that I, I would never have auditioned for that I didn't think was my part. Oddly enough, Take Me Out's one of those parts where I just didn't think it was my part. I didn't think it was my part. Uh, Liz Taylor in American Horror Story, uh, I did season five in, 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 in a hotel. I was like, eh, I don't know what I'm doing. This isn't what me. I can't do this. You know, so. <laughs> It, it, but but that so I, I'm not, I'm not a good judge of what I want to do. That being said, um, I have written myself a dream part. <laughs> um, I I have I'm, I've, I've pitched a TV series uh, a couple of years ago, and no one bought it. Uh, but I'm still working on it, and I'm writing it as a novel, and I want to repitch it. it. It's an amazing series. I won't tell you everything about it, except that I wrote myself a character who is a real estate hustler who basically cheek people on both ends of a sale and then turns himself into a motivational speaker in the future and becomes sort of a cult leader of disaffected, angry young men and is also on the DL gay and uh, is running around and, uh, you know, trying to get his, his hustle on and, uh, and then is, possibly fake assassinated because he wants to go underground and live in Tahiti. That's my... Cool. Uh, my... <laughs> I'm just saying I would see that film. So the, the yes. scenes it gets made, you've, you've got two tickets sold right here. That's only one part. You have two two viewers here already. So that kind of uh, goes into our next question. How do you approach characters? We have quite a few actors who follow us on social media, and I'm sure they'd appreciate hearing what it is that you do to help get into character and embody the essence of the characters that you've portrayed. You know, I'm, I'm an old fashioned Stanislavski actor, um, which means that we go to the text, we look at the text, we see what the clues are from the text. We see what, what other characters say about our characters. What do we say about ourselves? What is a lie? Um, what do we say versus what do we do? Uh, and then I, you know, I always try to grab onto something that is going to be for me a magical key that's going to be able to get me into the character quickly. 
And I tend to go to my characters. I don't tend to bring my characters to me. I find where they live and I go to them. Um, and, you know, I've always joked that I'm a hair and shoe actor. So you give me the right hairdo and the right shoes. I'm golden. I got the character. It's not always true. Sometimes it's a, it's a walk that gets you into a character. Sometimes it's a voice that gets you into a character. Sometimes it's literally an image in your head that gets you into that character. Nothing is foolproof. Nothing is replicable. I, what worked for last character may not work for this one. Um, I've had some characters that are so easy to get into and some that are so slippery and so hard to find. When I auditioned for Sweet Charity for Oscar, I remember I auditioned for that part, but I worked on that, I worked on that thing for, I don't know, seven days solid for the audition. And the first day I was like, uh, uh, nah, nah, nope, not good, not good, not good. <laughs> bad, 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 bad. Like nothing. Second day I worked on it, I was like, ooh, I, there was something. There was, there was one line in there that was actually not fake. There was actually a non-fake <laughs> moment right there. Third day, I found that thing. I, I expanded a little bit. I mean, I worked my tail off to get that character into, get myself into that shoehorn where I could do it. Someone like Liz Taylor on American Horror Story, oddly enough, I shaved my head. I put on high heels. I was home. I was like, bam, I am there. There was no work. It was crazy. I had to find certain, you know, emotional things for her and I had to find certain boundaries for her. But I found her like that. And that, that's the, some characters. It's like that. Some characters, it's a lot, a lot harder. But costume helps. Uh, makeup can help. Um, good old fashioned research. Um, looking at other people, imitating people, you know, trying on what they do, trying on someone else's posture, rhythm. Uh, oftentimes a character has a faster rhythm than I have or a slower rhythm than I have. Mm. Um, sometimes the, the, the best question to ask is what can't this character do? So, you know, the simple task of this is a person who cannot smile, who does not have the capacity to smile. When they laugh, they don't smile. When they cry, they don't smile. When they're happy, they don't smile. They cannot smile. What does that do to you? You know, or this is a character that cannot stop smiling, that everything he does is through the veil of smiling. So just simple questions like that can sometimes, or simple limitations, setting yourself a limitation can bring up incredible things. This is an acting masterclass right now. I love yeah. it. <laughs> well, if Helen Mirren can do it on Facebook, so can I. <laughs> Very true. Do you have any rituals for preparing yourself, both mentally and physically, before you kind of get on set? When, you, when you've got the character down and you're like, okay, first day of filming, I need to become them. Do you have anything you kind of go through or is it just as in for kind of finding the walk, finding the, the speech, whatever? I think, I think sometimes rituals are specific to characters. So in, in a play, you always have rituals. Everybody has rituals in plays. Um, actors are incredibly ritualistic in, in the theater. And so that means that People tend to do the same things at the same time every night. You tend to look in the mirror the last time and do the same thing. You tend to run one line. You, whatever it is that you do, you know, eat the food. It's the same thing every single night. When it comes to a character on TV or film, oftentimes I might do a ritual to get me into the character. I might say something to myself in that character's voice to get me into that character. I might remind myself of something. Um, I might, I might have the character, I don't know, she was, I mean, for Liz Taylor again, you know, it was simply a matter of, of giving a kind of a look or a kind of a thing, you know what I mean? Just like whatever it was, hers was gestural. For somebody else, like I played Stanley in, in season four of American Horror Story, it was sort of like doing an Ever G. Robinson thing, even though I didn't use that voice, kind of go, ah, are you sweetheart? What's going on with you? Just to kind of get me into that sense of who that character was. So it, it, it varies. It really does vary. From what I've seen, from kind of speaking to various people, the two most um, kind of superstitious people in the world are actors and sportsmen. Totally. I totally agree. They always have their rituals. And if it pays off, it pays off. So what can you do? We have a question from Twitter now from a user called Fresh Vegetable, which is one of my favorite names ever. What advice would you give to actors at the start of their career that are starting to get those high-profile roles? What should they focus on if they wish to push further? Well, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm both practical and not practical. So the, the, Im the impractical answer would be 
continue to do your work. Um, challenge yourself. Take risks. Don't be afraid to fail. You've got to fail. Don't be afraid to take a risk. Um, don't try to replicate what you did. Don't try to box yourself in. Don't assume that, okay, I did that thing and now this made me, I'm, I'm on a path. I can't vary. I can't, I can't, I can't move from this because that to me creates hollow acting and it creates a dissatisfied career path. At the same time, you know, we're in, we're in a practical world. We're in a situation where, especially now, young actors are told, your Instagram following is going to get you apart. Your your Twitter numbers are going to generate your 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 jobs. Um, I I think having talent, craft, is more important than talent. Working on your craft, getting better, figuring out how it is you do things, watch other actors, take classes, continue to treat your acting as a beautiful art form. And not a way to make money. Don't worry about, don't read reviews. Oh my God, don't read anything. <laughs> don't read what people say about you. Don't try to please them. Don't try to, don't try to predict what they're going to say. Don't try to meet their prediction. Um, don't listen to business people at all because they don't know what they're talking about. And that includes some producers. They have a different concern. They have a different concern. It's not your concern. You know, a good, good, good agent can be your best friend in a professional way and they can protect you and take care of you. A bad agent will exploit you and will take you to places where you don't need to go. Have a best friend, have someone that tells you the truth. You know, one of my dearest acting friends is Linda Eamon, an extraordinary actor. And when I'm in trouble, I go, Linda, what am I doing? Am I okay? And she will tell me the truth. She will tell me what's happening. And she'll put me on the path, you know. I would, I've invited to a, to a preview of a play I did, Major Barbara, um, on Broadway. And, uh, and I asked her to come to an early preview and just said, am I all right? And she goes, slow down, slow down. And I was like, great. Thank you. Okay. That I can, I can work with that. But you know, having, having somebody who is honest, who has, who loves you and who only means the best for you, who can tell you the truth is invaluable. There's no greater friend in the world than the one that will tell you exactly like the most honest truth at any point. They're the one you need at your side. And for good or ill. And for good or oh, ill, oh, saying, oh, honey, honey, you're killing it. I don't know what you're doing, but you're killing it. You are in the zone. You are, what you're doing is beautiful. Your work is beautiful. Wow, I'm so proud of you. That's, you know, that's also, it doesn't have to be negative. It can be positive. You need the positive stuff too. Slight follow-up to that question. Have you had a chance to work with any new faces at the moment that you think have got real potential that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the future? Are there any kind of names you want to drop for people to keep on our radar? Oh, well, gosh. I mean, I love the people in, in the Nevers, of course. All, you know, the entire cast. I don't want to name names, but I don't want to single anybody out and offend anybody. But there is a, you know, there is a quintet, sextuplet, set, that octuplet of, of, of girls in there who are just phenomenal, who I think are all just killing it. Um, um, God, I can't, I can't, my mind is suddenly freezing. I hear so many good actors coming up, uh, more in television than film, because it's harder, I think, to, to get that sort of individual attention in film. TV has a, a, a broader uh, platform to let people work. And I'm so proud of the incredible work I'm seeing. You know, someone who is not young by any means and doesn't need a leg up, but, Evan, Evan Rachel Wood, watching her really, really blossom in Westworld, really, she's always been a great actor, but she's really getting the opportunity to now show what a great actor she is. Mm. And I just, I just love watching people get those other opportunities. I watched, um, Normal People, this Irish show, um, which is just phenomenal. Watching those young actors, you're like, oh my God, yes, 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 all of you. Um, um, uh, I was a big fan of, um, oh, no, I can't think of it. 13 Reasons Why. What was it? I'm sorry. Um, Oh dear, I can't think of the name of the title of the show, but um, <laughs> I can't think of it. But there's so many good things on TV. I just stumble across and I see a, a 22-year-old, 25-year-old actor and go, "Whoa! How do you do that? That's amazing! Please keep going, please. I want to see more of you. So happy to see more of them." I'm I'm very glad to hear that you found good company on the Nevers. Um, when we did our broke down the casting announcements and gave our opinions on what, like, I was looking through the list and it's like. There's a, a, a really good mix of people that I've seen in things and have all been amazing. 
Yeah. And then there's a few names that I'd never heard of, but given the company that they're in, I'm now expecting huge things from them. And the sort of the core of the touch, I'm really looking forward to uh, sort of going on this hopefully long running sort of five plus year journey with all of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going slightly in the other direction, in your estimation, when was it you first realized, okay, this is it. I'm now, I'm now famous. Things will never be the same. I've, I've, I've done it. I've cracked it. Did you have that moment? When was it? No, I, I did not have that moment. And I'll tell you why. I mean, you know, mine has been a very slow career, which is fine by me. Um, I, I always work. I always worked. I was often in smaller parts and was the, you know, the, the famous thing was, um, you know, always that guy. Who's that guy? It's that guy. What's his name? Always that guy. It was weird when people started knowing my name. That was strange. Um, when I started getting people saying, are you Dennis O'Hare? I was like, oh my God, they know my name. You know, going into a Starbucks, or whatever, and someone kind of go, um, uh, oh, hi, Mr. O'Hare. I'm like, what? what? That was weird. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I often get people asking for autographs. Happens more in the States than in, in France. It does happen in France as well. Um, the French are shyer about it, but you know, my favorite reaction of anybody asking, recognizing me is when somebody, <laughs> goes by and they go oh oh and i just i love that i think a visceral a visceral thing and like oh my god it's him. um i you know i do conventions i love conventions um it the conventions are an incredibly equalizing and humbling uh atmosphere because on the one hand you'll see a line uh 200 people deep for someone you've never heard of and you go who is that and then you'll have nobody in your line. You go, well, obviously I'm nobody. And then somebody will walk up to you and, you know, be weeping and unable to actually put together five words because they're so staggered to be in your presence. And you go, really? Really? And then the one thing I always say to people is, you know, one day we'll all pass. Nobody will know who I am and nobody will care. <laughs> and so I enjoy it. I enjoy anybody who wants to talk to me, who wants to have coffee with me who wants to get my autograph. I think it's amazing. I really do. I wouldn't call myself famous. I would call myself, you know, known, um, not even well-known. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm quite comfortable with my level. I would not want to be more well-known um, because I just wouldn't want to have to put up with the trade-offs that those people have to deal with, you know. I think that's the the curse and the blessing of kind of the character actor is you're oh you're, you're that guy I know you you were in that thing you were amazing but they never know your name but they always remember the performance which is I suppose it's, it's a good thing. You're one of the most down to earth and personable actors that we know. Oh, it's, thank you. <laughs> it's probably easy for one in Hollywood to get above themselves and grow a big ego. You might have maybe worked with people like that. How have you managed to keep yourself grounded? Part of it is. Um, as I said before, having a kind of a slow career, you don't get anything too soon before you're ready for it. Um, so you have the ability to have perspective. Um, I'm not just an actor, so I'm also a writer. I spend a lot of my time thinking about writing. I'm a father. I spend a lot of my time being a parent and thinking about what I'm passing on to my son. Um, I'm also a member of a great family. I have an incredible family. My family definitely keeps me humble. They would not allow me to be you know, anything else. I'm just Denny when I'm around them. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think what we do is really, really important. I think being an actor is really important. I think making entertainment is really important. We, we reflect what's happening in the culture. We help the culture process things. We provide escape. We provide entertainment. At the same time, it is, it is not as perhaps vital as other things. Looking at this period we're in right now, this incredible period, think about the cashier at the local grocery store. That suddenly becomes someone who is a frontline warrior, someone who's doing the work of letting us continue to shop and putting themselves at risk because every single person they encounter that day could be a person who could infect them. Um, people who work for Amazon, people who are delivering packages, nurses, doctors, you know, that kind of work, when I see that kind of work, that makes me feel even humbler because I feel like, what am I doing? And I do, I don't downplay what I'm doing. I think what we do is a great service because think about what's happening right now. 
everyone's locked inside watching Netflix or HBO or Hulu. Without content, where would we be? We provide this incredible service in that way. Um, but anyway, it's a matter of perspective, I think. You just have to continually have perspective. And also, I like people. I just like people. I don't think I'm better than anybody. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I can relate to most people. I find almost everybody interesting. Um, part of why I love conventions is that I get to talk to people and I get to hear what they do for a living. Um, I met a drone operator once. I think it's fascinating. I met a guy named Jack in London who was a pawn broker. I think that's amazing. You know, people who work for EMT services, that's amazing. Um, security guards, uh, prison guards. I'm like, you're a prison guard? Really? I think it's incredible. And so I, I like people. And so, you know, I'll talk to anybody. I'm sure that's probably one of the many reasons you're an amazing actor, because you love people. So our listeners may know from the beginning of this interview that you speak fluent French. When did you start studying French? Um, I started in high school. Uh, I had really, really, really good French teachers in high school. I had a woman named Madame Dewey who uh, was a great. She was Belgian and Chinese, and she had an amazing French accent. And Brother Wolf was an amazing French accent. And then I went to college and took a couple years of French. Uh, Nadine Spencer was my Belgian French teacher in, in Northwestern University. And then I just kept up with it. And then, um, I don't know, I've always been a Francophile. And then when I met my husband, Hugo, he was a French major in college and had lived in France for five years. So we would often speak French to each other. And then when we uh, decided to, you know, have a son, we, one of our important goals was that he would be bilingual. And so from the moment Declan was born, we spoke to him in French and he has gone to French school since he was three. Um, we often traveled to France and um, when it came time to leave the U.S., we could have gone to London. I love London. Um, but I, as an Irish citizen, I have European uh, citizenship. So it made more sense to go to a European country. And the one that made the most sense for us was France. Um, but, uh, you know, I love, I also speak Spanish. Um, I studied Arabic for a year. I studied Russian for a year. Um, I can count in Hindi. I can count in Turkish. Um, I, I tried to learn Vietnamese. I failed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I pull out my Czech when I'm in, when I'm in Czechoslovakia. You know, um, Prosi, Mata Banan? You know, good day. Do you have a banana? That's what I remember from that. You know, Jekwi. Jekwi, Jekwi. Yes. So I can see, think of it in my Hindi. Uh, that's Hindi. And then, that's Arabic. That's Russian. Um, English. Uh, okay, so you mentioned it at the start and sort of a, just a moment ago. You've been living in France for a few years now, and you said your reason as the uh, somewhat declining social climate in the US. Yeah. Do you could you see yourself returning to America? Maybe if there was a change in leadership, or are you just are you happy in France at the moment? You know, we're I, I, we're happy at the moment. We're pretty happy. Um, it. Uh, Never say never. Um, never say nevers. And um, <laughs> I, I don't know what the future holds. You know, part of the truth is that we always wanted to live abroad. We thought about when we had a son that we want him to be raised abroad. Um, that coincided with Trump getting elected at sort of the exact right time in a way. Um, although what he was the you know the the spark to get us out. Um, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I could see us living here until my son is 18. I could see us there living here forever. I could see us living in London. I adore London. Uh, we were in Berlin recently. It's an amazing place. I love India. I spent a lot of time in India and would happily go back and, and spend a lot more time. Um, I lived in New York for 26 years. It's one of the greatest cities in the world. I adore New York. Um, we may end up there again. Yeah. It's hard to say. I, I hate to sound wishy-washy, but uh, <laughs> never know. Never know our life's going to take you. All right. So question from the AHS zone. <laughs> American Horror Stories. All right. Hi, Dennis. Ryan Murphy announced today that he's going to be creating an American Horror Story spinoff that explores the anthology format on an episodic level. Is that a project you would like to be involved in? 
Absolutely. I love Ryan. I love everything he does. I think he's an amazingly creative mind. Um, I have very happy memories of American Horror Story. Um, I, I would, I would definitely, definitely, definitely go back. Absolutely. So you're living in France right now. It's just a two hour Eurostar ride away from us here in London, where Joss Whedon is not currently, but has been recently. Hopefully you'll be resuming sooner rather than later filming on the nevers we'd be remiss not to mention that you've been cast as dr edmund haig in the nevers described as a gifted american surgeon who uses his skills in the coldest and most brutal way but all in the name of progress of course do you get a kick out of playing these sort of uber villainous characters like edmund haig or of course russell edgington from true bloods who was fantastically evil i do i do i you know um they're operatic in that way um mm. joss joss's writing is so beautiful and so detailed and so specific and so you know crazy and psychotic i adore it so much <laughs> um, i you know we i think i've shot um i think i shot four or five episodes maybe four and um, I had I had the best time the best time doing it. You know, the, not only is the the world that we're inhabiting amazing, but the physical sets that we're inhabiting are amazing. What what we're asked to do is amazing. Um, and nothing is simple. You know, he the, the characters all seem like they are one thing on the surface, but they all have layers and layers and layers. And I love that about about any show is where you get to discover that and who I thought he was in the first episode is not who he was in the second episode. You know, Dr. Edmund Haig is also a very complicated character and I, I can't really get into that, but uh, let's, let's just say there are <laughs> levels and levels and levels. <laughs> Excellent. You're making me very, very excited to hear that because um, I have to say I, I was a big fan of True Blood and particularly of your character who was one of my, um, you and Eric Northman were my two absolute favorite characters from that show. I actually had to invent a new word for that show to describe your roles, which was grossome, which is when a scene is massively gross, but also undeniably awesome. No, I love, I love that character so much, Russell Edgington. And again, another one who I thought, you know, in the books, he was one thing, and I thought he was actually poorly, poorly drawn in the books. And I don't mean as a criticism; I just mean that he wasn't a valued character. And Alan Ball and the writers really knew how to run with him in a great way. And you know, that was that was a we were very close to the writers in that one, and we felt like we knew them in a way that I've never felt that in until someone like Joss, obviously, because he writes everything. But the writers in True Blood, there's a, a room of them, six or seven, and it was really amazing to to have that relationship. I really felt this, this understanding of that relationship and, and they each one had a different style. And each one had a different understanding of the character. And my favorite mm. writer in that group too, Nancy Oliver and Alex Wu. And Alex Wu was the one who, um, you know, wrote the crazy speech for the newscaster when, when Russell pulled the sign out of the newscaster. Um, yes. <laughs> unbelievable stuff. I loved it so much. So how did the role in The Nevers come to you? Did your agent bring it to you? Did Joss reach out to you personally? How did you get involved in Did you have to audition for it? You know, uh, I will have to thank Olivia Williams for the part uh -huh. because Olivia and I were doing Tartuffe at the National yes. uh, in <laughs> January of 20, 2019, I guess it was. And um, Olivia, it was like I think our first preview, we were warming up and she said, I just got you a job. And I said, what? <laughs> she, goes, she goes, no, I was talking to Joss Whedon about you. And he said, oh, my God, what a great idea. Um, and what a great idea. And she goes, I got you a job. <laughs> I said, well, how much do I owe you? And then, you know, Nina Gold, who's the casting director, who is just one of the great casting directors of all time, um, asked me uh, to come in and meet with Joss. And I did. I had an amazing conversation with him where we talked about books and sci-fi and everything. And then it wasn't too long after that that they made the offer. But um, uh, so Olivia Williams. Yep, Olivia Williams. Yep. As if we needed more reason to love Olivia Williams. Exactly, another reason to love her. Um, the Nevis is being billed as epic sci-fi drama, which is three of my favourite words in the world put together. Some of your fellow actors on the show, Anne Skelly, Ella Smith, and particular favourite of mine, Nick Frost, have alluded to the scale of the production as being really yeah. quite large. 
HBO really seems to be throwing their money behind the series. Do you get a sense when you're on set of just the size and the scope of the production? Like, does it feel grand when you're on set? It does. I mean, the the actual, I, I've walked around a bunch of the sets and the sets are, you know, gorgeous, unbelievably gorgeous. It's Victorian. The, the detail, I have a lab, my lab, you could just spend hours in that thing. Yes. And I did actually walk around and trying to see everything that, you know, weird contraptions that buzz and saw that actually work. You can actually use them. You could hack someone's limb off. Not that I would. <laughs> um, you know, things that bubble, weird enamel sinks, beautiful 19th century enamel sinks, a police state. It's just these amazing sets. The, the, the detail is just crazy. And then um, there's another set, which I, I can't really talk about, but it, it is, you know, it is a, it is, it is a massive um, creation on multi levels, which I get to, you know, inhabit with a real working elevator. Um, it, it's a pretty extraordinary world. They're also doing a lot of stuff outside um, with, you know, using London as a backdrop, the gorgeousness of London and, uh, and lots and lots and lots of, of, of people who populate this. Um, some huge set pieces, some huge, um, events that will just be phenomenal. You know, it, it really is grand. Grand is the best word. I mean, obviously, I was already quite excited for this show. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't be <laughs> working here. But just I'm talking to you and hearing about the bubbling lab and the working elevator. I'm I'm literally dying of excitement right now. You are really not helping me remain cool. This is going to be so good. Yes. <laughs> I just want to watch it right now. Um, I know we're a ways off. <laughs> in an interview with the French Outlet Binge, you revealed that you get to sing in the first episode. How is that for you? We obviously know that you enjoy singing. Um, were you surprised to find out that your character would be singing? I love that the character was singing. I, I just loved it. I was so happy for that. Um, I, you know, Joss actually, I think, saw me in Assassins um, back in 2004 so he already knew that I could sing. And um, I think that's bubbling in his mind. The funny thing about that was that uh, he gave me the words and then he said, just come up with something. And I was like, okay, great. And so I listened to a lot of sort of, you know, ditties and Victorian things. And he said, it should be like a sea shanty. And I said, I'd love to come up with it. So I actually came up with the tune, um, yes. which I think, I think then they cross-checked to make sure that it wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> in the public domain. <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't ripping somebody up unconsciously. And then I get to set and he's changed the words and, you know, my, my tune didn't quite fit anymore. And so there was a little bit of that, ah, last minute running around. Um, <laughs> but I, I love that I got to sing. I just, I adored it. It made me very, very, very happy. Yeah. He's the man. And now our next question is from Patreon backer Moon Logic. When interviewed about Milk, you said that you love loathsome characters. In brief interviews with hideous men, you play one of the hideous men in a playfully constructed scene where you appear in a captain's uniform at one point. Could you say something about that experience? Um, you know, that project I came on because of John Krasinski, who I adore. Um, he brought me on and Chris Maloney and I got to play together. And I love Chris. Um, so it was more because of those things than anything else. And uh, I just I love the idea of it. And I, I sort of played his henchman little brother or sort of loathsome you know yes man which i thought was so much fun i i just remember that that was a that was a really um challenging shoot because we shot in a regional airport somewhere upstate new york um and there, the announcements were on a loop like every two minutes and we had to we had to act between the announcements and we had to act <laughs> planes coming in and it was really frustrating and really crazy but we we managed to do it it was, it was hilarious um, but you know, I do, I do love characters that have a strong profile or a strong handle to grab onto. Um, they have a, you know, loathsome characters, char villains, characters that are of a certain type have something you can really sink your teeth into and grab. And to me, the great joy in those characters is to show a surprising part to them show a surprising element to them to 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 upset people's notions of what they are and i always go into those characters defending them i don't care if i agree or disagree with someone's politics if i'm playing a character i'm on their side i get behind them i find the way to justify everything they do 
They are my job. I don't judge them. I am their advocate. That's my job as an actor is to advocate for that character. If I agree to take it on, I am 100% behind them. I'm not making fun of them. I'm not trying to diminish them. I'm trying to completely give them their due, you know. Uh, you keep pushing to reinvent yourself. You've written screenplays, you're an author, you've written plays. Are there any other parts of television or film that you'd like to explore? Have you considered possibly directing an episode of something? You know, I, I, I can imagine directing. It's not one of my passions. Um, I don't think uh, I have the, the vision to really do it. Um, I'm a great collaborator. I, I'm not necessarily the best leader. Uh, I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to be, I don't <laughs> want to be the guy with the answers. You know, I love being part of the team. Um, and so in that regard, I would say I probably would not end up being a great director. Um, what I do want to do, and I do have a, a, a great, um, sort of dream of doing is I kind of want to be a television host. And I want to host a show about, I have two shows I'm pitching. Um, I'll just go ahead and say it because Emma's out there. Buy my show. Hire me. <laughs> I want to do a show where I go across the country and I learn different people's card games because I love playing cards and I want to play cards with them. And I want to go to their town. Tell me who, who taught you how to play. Tell me how to play. Let's sit down and play this game and let's eat food and talk about where you're from. I just want to do a sort of weird American travelogue where we explore canasta and hearts and spades and gin and gin rummy and fish and all forms of poker and bridge. I learned to play bridge with a bunch of upper middle class ex-European royalty and Isaac Mizrahi at the Alcott Hotel on 72nd Street um, for 11 bucks every Saturday. And I had the best time. And um I want to I want to share that experience. I want to go and and learn from a Kansas farmer how to play pitch and have him tell me how to play it while we're sitting in his kitchen. And he also explains, you know, his routine on the farm. I just want to bond with people over card games because I love playing cards. And the other show I want to do is I want to have somebody like HBO or A&E or somebody pay me a lot of money to go around the world and watch opera. And I want to take somebody with me, somebody famous, interesting, and I want to teach them about opera. I want to take Lady Gaga and go, okay, we're going to go see Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress. <laughs> Here's what you need to know. In a nutshell, it's based on a very famous thing called The Rake's Progress by Hogarth, a series of paintings. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to explain the plot of it. And then we're going to go and we're going to go backstage and we're going to meet some of the singers and we're going to watch them putting the set together. And then we're going to go and we're going to watch the opera and we'll show a little bit on TV. And then we're going to go and we're going to eat food afterward with one of the singers. And we're going to talk about the opera. Four and a half hour. Done. That's my pitch. You have amazing ideas. Amazing ideas. <laughs> um, did you receive any pushback from Hollywood, if it was like agents, casting directors, studio heads, about your choice to be open about your sexuality? Like at any point, did people try to dissuade you from being your authentic self? Or how was that journey like? Never. You know, I, I was, I was, oh gosh, I was out always. I mean, mm -hmm. I think my first interview where I was professionally out was my 21, 22 in Chicago. Um, I don't think anybody ever said to me, you shouldn't do it. Certainly nobody professionally. Again, I have to say I'm a character actor and the great joy of that is that I get to be anybody and I can be believable as anybody. So my sexuality doesn't necessarily uh, limit me. I don't think, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't think it should limit anybody. I think we have great examples now of people who are out Matt Bomer being one of them, who is a, completely plausible leading man, Zach Quinto, completely plausible, Jonathan Groff, um, amazing actors who can be out, Neil Patrick Harris, who can be out and can be gay and can be believable in their roles. And so it used to be, I think it was harder for actors. Um, I think there's still some pressure for some people and um, I, everyone's got their own journey. Um, you know, I, I'm a political person. So for me coming out was also political. I got married the minute it was legal as a political expression, also as a practical one, so we could both adopt my son. Um, but I, so I, for me, political and personal are, are married. They're together. But I wouldn't dare to speak for anybody else. And I don't advocate that anybody else should follow my path. You know, 
everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. I have a very good friend who's an actor who has chosen to remain in the closet. And I'll judge him. That is his journey, you know? Beautifully said. Uh, you've worked with genre TV legends like uh, Brad Falchuk and Ryan Murphy on AHS, Alan Ball on True Blood, and now Joss Whedon on The Nevers. Can you tell us about any differences on the set from working with Whedon to Ball to Murphy? Like, is, there, is their process wildly different, or is a set a set a set? No, you know, I, these people have incredibly strong personalities and visions, and they are so creative. And I do feel like they create a world in on the set as well. Um, you know, Alan Ball was, he trusted his people. He trusted who he had working for him. And he was always present and always very much shepherding things along. Um, but you got a real strong input from the directors and from the writers. He really shared with the writers, I felt like. Um, you know, Brian also really let his writers lead and he was he, he was very very generous i think with, with giving them a platform for creativity and brad um i love when ryan directed i love being directed by him i thought his direction was always insightful and really really great but there's also a great team of directors that he hired he hires great people he hires great actors um and you know joss is i think to me the most i don't know um what the right word is but he creates a true family atmosphere so he, he makes the, the set an extension of his, of, of, of the world that he's creating and invites you in to be part of the family. And, and he's involved in all the creativity. He's very, very present. You know, I didn't have anybody else direct me. So for me, it's always, always Joss. That's not true. I know. I know that people have directed. Um, but I, in my experience, it's only Joss. And I love that. I, 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 I like, I love having him around. I feel very comforted by that. He's he's one of the kind of the real old school creatives. He's really involved in every part of his world. And it really shows that like even yeah. when he has other writers come in, other directors, there's a very clear kind of Whedon feel throughout all of his work. And I, I'd be quite interested to see how that translates through kind of the lens of HBO, which who also have a very specific feel yeah. to their products so i'm really really looking forward to this show that's why i keep saying it but it's it's still it's always true as we all know covid19 has shut down production in hollywood but once production starts back up will there be any projects besides the nevers that you'll be working on that you can talk about you know i've got a bunch of stuff that i'm i'm doing on my own um i'm writing a uh play with my collaborator lisa peterson about the fall of rome called the song of rome and um, that's a play for one woman. We're also, however, working on another version of it that may be involve us as writers and versions of ourselves. And we may end up doing that sometime on Zoom. I don't know. Or in the um, I'm also um, written the first draft of the children's book, which I am working on my second draft. Um, I'm finishing my novel and uh, I hope to get that into a first draft form very, very soon. Um, pushing that along and uh, you know I've made some connections here in France and I want to I do a one man show called Iliad which I've done here in Paris recently at the Théâtre du Rond-Point and I want to tour that in if we can whenever that happens again um, in France and other places um, and I'm and always you know I'm very open to working with anybody I, I love I love working with people I love I love collaboration and uh, and so I'm always looking for someone to offer me an idea or offer a play and I'm there you know, or a TV thing. I, I just did a beautiful little thing called Net User for my friend Eric Rosen. It's a little 12 minute thriller about, um, uh, an activist who gets hacked and how social media and how sort of bots and troll farms can really destroy our lives. It's a real thriller and, uh, that's available online, Net User by Eric Rosen. And I did that because I believe in him and I believe where he's going and that may end up doing something and I would certainly follow that. And, uh, you know, who knows where we're going to be? This is an uncertain time for everybody. Um, I know it'll be a, a creative time for all of us. We're all thinking and creating. And who knows what it will lead to, you know? Just waiting for all the COVID-themed survival movies that will no doubt be coming out in about three <laughs> no. or four years. No. Exactly. <laughs> I believe that is us done for the evening. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure and an honour to talk to you. Um, you've somehow managed to dial my excitement up about three or four more spots and now climbing the walls for more reasons than one 
You're both very, very generous, and I really appreciate you. Well, excellent questions. What a great conversation. I'm, I'm honored, truly. Thank you so much again. And do you have any social media that you would like to promote? Where can people find you? I'm, um, on Instagram, I'm, uh, I'm O-Dennis, O-H-D-E-N-I-S. On Twitter, I'm at Dennis O'Hare. I really have the same website, DennisO'Hare.com. I never go on it and fix it. I'm so sorry about that. But you can email me there. <laughs> you can always email me um, at, at that. I think, it's, I think it's O-Dennis at DennisO'Hare.com or oh, Dennis God. O'Hare. But anyway, it's my website. Go to my website and you'll find it and I will answer you back usually. Um, uh, I'm on Facebook, I think. I think I've got a Facebook group. I've got a couple of them and they're great. They, they, they promote things. My friend Michelle Santa Lucia always promotes me and she's just phenomenal and Max Dimitri. Um, and, uh, gosh, that's about it, I guess. I'm not on, I'm not on, uh, TikTok. I'll do that. Uh, <laughs> not yet. I think that's us done for the evening. Sorry if we didn't get to your questions, anyone out there. Uh, we had a lot, so many questions to get through and very little time to ask them. So if you enjoyed the, the interview today, you can find us at hbothenevers.com or at hbothenevers on various social medias. We are also on Patreon with the same name. That's us for the evening. Gina, do you want to say your sign off? Sure. Once again, you can follow me at Gina Gemini, G-E-M-E-N-I. And Ty doesn't have social media. Maybe one day. <laughs> and once again, thanks everyone for listening. And thank you, Dennis, for being here. Thank you for joining us. This has been The Nevers Podcast. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. They're coming. Are you ready? This is a Culture Inject production.